Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the pod that shares the stories of those affected by suicide. Lost a loved one? Attempted it yourself? Did you know that when you share a burden, the load is lightened? Come listen in with your host, Elaine Lindsay. Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the podcast, is for education only. Some of the subject matter could be triggering for those that are newly grieving or in a poor state of mental health. Please call your local suicide hotline or mental health office if you need immediate help. Hi there. It's great to be back. It's Elaine Lindsay with Suicide Zen Forgiveness. And I'm excited today, which is maybe not a word some people might use for what we're talking about. But I am, in fact, excited excited to talk to my guest, Alexandra Wyman. And the reason for that is I believe Alexandra, who's gone through a terrible tragedy, has actually written what to me amounts to be the manual for anyone dealing with suicide. If you lose anyone, this and no one's paying me for this. Uh, she didn't even know I was going to say that at this moment. But I have to say, I've gone through the book probably three or four times. I've had it for a week and a half. And the fact is, it covers all the things that are important. Without further ado, let's learn a little bit more about Alexandra. My guest today is Alexandra Wyman. She's an advocate and public speaker for resources in the aftermath of suicide. After she lost her husband to suicide in August of 2020, Alexandra found a need to change the language around suicide and decided to write about it. Her memoir, The Suicide Club, What to Do When Someone You Love Chooses Death, is an Amazon bestseller. She's spoken at a variety of conferences, including Bridging the Divide Suicide Prevention and Awareness Summit 2022 and 2023 Northwest Conference on Childhood Grief, and has been accepted to present at the 2023 Military Social Work and Behavioral Health Conference, as well as the International Association of Suicide Prevention Conference 2023 in Piran, Slovenia. Alexandra has also been a guest on a variety of podcasts, including The Unlocked Moment, Author Hour, Resilience Unraveled, She Persisted, and My Wake Up Call with Dr. Mark Golston. Alexandra has her own podcast called The Widow's Club as well. She practices pediatric occupational therapy and lives in Colorado with her son. So without further ado, let's introduce Alexandra. Hello. Hi. It's so great to chat with you today. It's absolutely wonderful to have you and my impromptu ad there for your book was completely <laughs> heartfelt. I'm going to, I will put all the information on the transcript pages with the podcast itself. I have to say that I've dealt with lots and lots of grief counselors and talked to all kinds of people over the years. I've had a very long time to come to terms with the first uh, couple of suicides in my life. And I have to say this book from start to finish covers everything you need to know. And uh, the one thing I forgot to say first was my sincere condolences. Oh, thank you. It had to be very difficult for you with just a, a little, not even toddler yet. I'm not going to take any more of the story. I would like you to share your story with us and we'll go from there. Sure, thank you so much. And, and thank you for all the kind words you say, you've been, you've said about the book, because that's that was the goal is how can I help someone else through this. And so I like to start by saying I, I was someone who bought into this idea that life was successful. If you go to college, you meet a partner, you buy your house, 
get your get married, get your 2.5 children, your dogs, your picket fence. That was uh, what I bought into. And um, that did not happen for me. I ended up traveling quite a bit after school, didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was well into my 30s by the time I met Sean. And we just had this whirlwind romance. We just felt a soul connection. I got engaged very quickly, married, bought our house, and found out we were pregnant all within a two-month period. We didn't get married after two months of knowing each other, but in that two-month period, and finally I was checking off those boxes and saying, yep, this is great. I've got that life. My life is successful. And then four days before our second wedding anniversary, Sean ended up dying by suicide. And there were no signs. I didn't see it coming. I did know that he struggled with some of the trauma from his childhood, that there was a lot of stress going on in multiple different facets, including COVID, being in the middle of COVID. And definitely felt in that one instance that, I mean, my life just blew up in my face with a just over one-year-old. So the idea that I definitely went back and forth with this is not how we planned it. This is not what I thought was going to happen. Where's the successful life that I checked all these boxes for? And so that kind of led me I, to really start to think about what the resources were as I started my process with grief yeah. and then to help. Because I, I was gifted some beautiful books and widow's journals. I just didn't have anyone who could really guide me through any of the process. And although, and it's different for all the survivors I've met, I feel that it's different. Even locally where I live, it's different. Some people had really good advocacy. Some people didn't. Some people had really good support from the county. Some people didn't. So it just seemed to be very inconsistent. And I've always been someone, if I go through something, how can I either help someone go through something similar or what can I do to be the one who goes through it and then help someone else so they don't have to go through it? To that end, before we go any farther, yeah, I think what struck me most about the book was you talked about a lot of the nitty gritty things, managing VA benefits, and what do you do when your loved ones and other loved ones have different thoughts on what happens now? What do you do in the case of you know, where you live or little things like your car, your car was in your husband's name. It's things that most people, when they're trying to help somebody, someone who's deep in grief, those aren't the things they come to help with. They bring you food. They, they want to make you feel better because you're upset, but they don't look at the day-to-day pieces that you have to put in place in order to facilitate going on for you and your son and living day-to-day. People don't think about or don't look at those pieces. Oh, correct. Yeah, absolutely correct. And and that's usually, I'm a big proponent now of encouraging people to get those things figured out when you feel healthy and good and have a will have that. Um, Sean did not have one, so that did complicate the situation. But it took a year and a half, I want to say, for me to actually get to a point where I felt that I had completed most of that business, the business stuff. Because every industry, and I'm not sure for where you are, if it's similar, but for us, it's like the banks, every bank is different for what they want. Same thing with the car, everything's different. So there's no, you can't say, here's exactly what you can do. It's more of a, have as many death certificates as you can have your hand and have and enlist help to go through it because the amount of phone calls, the amount of back and forth, sometimes things had to be mailed in, sometimes things had to be, yeah. it's just, which says something about our systems <laughs> that make it so difficult, especially oh when yeah. there are even ones, I, I had a couple conversations with people even where they would question the validity of the death, not even wanting a death certificate, yeah. but almost saying you know, it would be easier if you had just divorced the person. <laughs> I'm like, that, that's not really what happens yeah. um, because of the mistrust in certain industries. But absolutely, absolutely I, I didn't have any of that. So I, I'm so grateful that that's helpful or, or 
so a tool that people can turn to yeah. to prepare rather than make it such a longer process of trying to figure all that out. One of the things you talked about was having that many death certificates is something that people really don't think about. And in the case of a friend, it came up way down the road. Like we're talking nine, 10 months later. And the family had to go through it all again. They had just come to get into a groove of, of now living without and bang, they're up against this wall again. And uh, mm -hmm. it does make it, you're, you're freshening the wound, which is not good. And having, having a, a manual, if you will, and, and to me, I, I think your book should be in funeral homes as well, because that's where you get some of your information, not all of it. And it can be, it's so overwhelming for people. I'm sure the first time you went to the funeral, you just don't take in everything you can't. Oh, no. Mm -mm. The fact that we have to make all of these decisions in that shock period, in the immediacy of someone's death, no matter the manner of death, I think is a big part. This is why I keep saying have stuff ready. Yeah. Take the time. It doesn't mean you're bringing it on. It doesn't mean that you're opening yourself up to death. It just says you're getting prepared so that if something does happen, that you have things in order because exactly what you're saying, so many decisions are being made, discussions are being had. And there are times I look back and go, oh, that, did I say that? Did I, is that what we ended up doing? Because I don't remember yeah. Yeah. simply because of the shock and how much had to be taken care of in such a short period of time. Absolutely. And especially we went through my, my aunt, when my aunt died, my aunt had no will. And it was, for one, very shocking to our family because she was the most detailed human being on the planet. She died on holidays with a flurry of activity. But all these years later, that was in 1979. And all these years later, in 2021, when my sister died, we found out that my grandmother, who had lived with my aunt, actually bought eight extra plots in the cemetery because of the all the garbage we had to go through when my aunt died. And she wanted to be sure the rest of the family didn't have to jump through all those hoops. That's what that was incredible. Yeah, totally incredible. Not that, you know, we, we were shocked that my sister died, but it- Sure. It was, wow, like my grandmother had the foresight after all she'd gone through, somewhat like mm -hmm. you, to make something available for people that come after so that they don't have to struggle the way she did. And it is a little uncomfortable. When I talk about this, I, it's not that I get really joyous over <laughs> these ideas of death planning or having a plot or knowing what, making sure that what you would like is well known and made known. It's useful so that when something happens or if you have another shocking death in, or something happens that you, it's one last thing that you have to worry about. It's one last thing that you can just have off your plate and know because there's more that's going to end up on your plate than you realize. Absolutely. And to that end, particularly in the case of suicide, but we need to normalize these conversations. We have to not be afraid of death and grief. And we have to start preparing as we do for other things. And I, I can say this because I am the most guilty individual. We just realized two years ago that my husband and I have wills. And we are giving our children's care, should we die, to my parents. Now, <laughs> you don't know exactly how old I am. I'm 67. My youngest child is 41. My oldest child will be 50 in September. I don't think it's up to us 
whether or not they'll live with my parents. God rest my mother, who has been gone since 2012. What a what an oversight. And it wasn't an oversight. It was the fact that I didn't want to talk about those things. I didn't want to look at those things. Finally, I get it. And it's just, we have to take away that big fear that, yeah, we're going to cause the death or we're going to precipitate tragedy because we are looking at these things. I think it, it just makes sense to be prepared. I absolutely agree. And that was one of the first things because grief just in general can bring out so much from people. And I see it makes people do weird things, yeah. but you just don't know. And so the people that you think you're going to have your back may not. The people that you never thought would are going to. People's reactions can run the gamut. And then to, to just have this preparedness or the, just to have, again, just to have something there available to assist so that you don't have to worry about those things and can just handle your, it took me a good eight months before I really felt oh, like yeah. I started grieving because yeah. I was just caught up in everything else that was going on. Yeah. And again, to have those conversations or to not shy away from them yeah. is really helpful. And also on the flip side of it, there's just so much power in being able to say what has happened to our loved ones. Yes. And to even talk about our fears, talking about fear isn't what's going to bring about that fear. No. Um, I get into a lot of manifestation rhetoric and follow different yeah. communities around this. And it's actually being quiet about those fears that can bring on a little bit more of that, of continuous fear, I should say. So being able to talk about it and say and be real and vulnerable and vulnerability is hard. It's really hard, but being able to be vulnerable with another person or say, I'm worried about this, or I think there's just a lot of power in doing that. I, you're absolutely right. And, and I think too, the power is in having things prepared. It's also very loving for the rest of the people around you. It's making sure that they don't have to do as much. Those eight months where you weren't able to grieve because you were so busy doing just makes it harder on you in the long run. It does. And it took me a while to really understand I really needed to start setting boundaries with individuals. I had to really start quieting what I call other distractions from other people involved in the situation in order to start getting grounded in, in what I needed to start moving forward. And it's already there's already so much that happens and goes on, different feelings and self-blame and guilt and shame and all of those are going to be natural feelings and then having the opportunity to actually quiet some of other people's projections and ideas and opinions in order to, to really start taking those steps forward. And it is unfortunate, but in times of tragedy, we do see the best, but also the worst in those around us. I Yes. And I think that was in addition to the other shock I had, I think that's what was so shocking for me is that really seeing again, as I had mentioned, like what grief does and how it comes out from other people. And everyone has, everyone has to have their journey. It's just how those journeys impact each other. And I was looking and thinking that there would be a little bit more unity, that we would yeah. link arms, come together. This is awful. And instead, that's not exactly, I did have that, but just not to the extent that I was thinking that I would for my own particular situation. And but I do understand and people need to understand that everyone has a different perception of, of what has happened. And everyone processes at a different rate. They process differently based on those perceptions. And it can be very eye-opening when you look back and see that, yeah, the people you thought would react one way completely reacted another. And it can really throw you off kilter 
which is unfortunate because it will make you second guess how you respond to others sometimes going forward. Oh, completely. And that was exactly my situation. It's already very nerve wracking, very yeah, confidence is shattered yeah. going into this kind of process and dealing with grief. And it makes sense to me. And that was a big part that was so hard for me because it makes sense to me that as you're going through this, you're going to, like you said, you're going to have projections from other people. You're going to have their own ideas of grief. And at the same time, we're all looking still for safety and security in our own process. And when other people are coming with their own differences in their own process, it just ends up being, in my opinion, just a big mess of emotion. Yeah. And especially for people who were still new Sean, but weren't necessarily in the immediacy. I think that those people are also looking for safety and security that something like this won't happen to them. Yeah. So they're trying to navigate, wait a second, how, what were the signs? What was going on? How looking for that information and looking for comfort from me in order to make, help them feel better. Like, oh, this will never happen to me. And, and I kept saying, suicide doesn't discriminate. <laughs> doesn't no, discriminate. no, it does not. Sean was the life of the party. He was the one that people say the last person we ever thought would do something yeah. like this or this would happen to. And yet it did. And now I've learned, it's taken me a while to learn, but now I've learned instead of trying to comfort people in a sense of that type of prevention, instead to say, love your people, love on your people, tell them you love them, tell that you care for them. If you have concerns for someone, tell them, even if they react, it, in a negative way, still ask and tell them. Because to me, that's going to be better than fretting or worrying about signs or is someone going to do this or what's going to happen versus just saying like, you can't control that. But instead, just take that vulnerable step and tell your loved ones what's really going on for you. And something that I think is critically important is when you ask someone how they're doing, I want you to really listen to their answer because it's not always the words that come out of their mouth. You, you need to really be listening with your whole body, be able to sometimes see. And that's only sometimes because I cannot tell you how many times what you just said is the first thing I hear from people. Oh my God, he, she, life of the party, always in a good mood, happy person. That, that was my experience at 16 with my friend. Andrea, of all of us in the group, Andrea is not the one we would ever written down as a name we thought would be in danger. And, and sadly, that happens a lot. So I think it's I think it's important that we not only love on those that are in our immediacy, but I'm challenging people, if you will, to take on a stranger, even only once a month, truly ask someone how they are and let them understand that you will listen to what they have to say. You're so right about that with actually listening. And even if someone says, I'm fine, there's something, <laughs> there's definitely more listening than just what they're saying and being able to ask more questions or, you know, be able to really show that you care. And I recently had a conversation with someone about the idea of letting people know how much it means to be around them. So it's great to see you. It's so good to be around you. Those types of things, we I think we get so caught up in our day-to-day -day that we forget those little nuances yeah. of just being able to show that appreciation for people being in our lives. Or even like you're saying, strangers. Yeah. You can compliment someone at any point in time. Not saying you have to compliment them, but it's something so simple. And I think we forget to do that. I recently was at an airport and I think airports are one of the best places to people watch. Love it. Yeah. But the hustle and bustle and the constant people used to line up nicely, have chats and, and that's just not 
really culturally what we do anymore. And it's, I've got to get, and I even did that a little bit because I had a connecting flight. I'm like, I got to get to my flight and try to (laughs) get through there, but then also be mindful. So does everybody else. Everybody has some place they're trying to get to. Everyone has something that they're doing. And we just miss a little bit of that politeness and that connection and that unity. And my larger thought is if we all try to reach out to one stranger, then eventually there won't be any strangers. Exactly. Oh, that's really beautiful when you think about it. That's so true though. And just the amount, the power, there's there's all so much research already and anecdotal research on just the power of that unity or just coming together and, and having communities that you have a shared experience and then are able to come together. And so often I think we look for specific shared experiences or that we fall in line in our thought processes or if it's political or if it's social or economical versus just that we're humans and we all have lived experience and life is not predictable. And, mm-hmm. you know, I usually say life is an ocean and, but we're predictable. How we respond is what can be predictable and safe. And that in and of itself to me is just our connection that we're all humans trying to navigate this crazy ocean that we're all in versus needing something specific to align in order for us to feel more confident in what we're doing. You can always offer a smile. It costs you nothing. And it may be to someone there everything that day. Exactly. Exactly. You have to lift your head up from our devices. You have yes. to lift your head up to, to it. But yeah, it does right. It doesn't have to it doesn't have to take a lot of time. It doesn't have to be super involved. Just lift your head and smile at someone or wave. Yeah, I'm I'm one of these people and I've I've been doing this, my husband will tell you, I've been driving him nuts for over 20 years. <laughs> When we go on holiday or when we're going walking in the park or wherever we are, it's my job to say hello to everybody that walks by. Now, most people these days have earbuds in or they're looking at their phone or whatever. And he'll say, we didn't even hear you. Ah, but some, they get so far like past me and then somebody will go, oh, hello. Right. Like they realize what the the wave was or what have you, and it's it's just it doesn't cost either of us anything, and quite frankly, it makes me happy, and I'm all well, about and, being happy. Exactly, and again, it's that it's a way to connect with people, and I think of that taking my dog for walks sometimes or and we have a lot of cyclists that come through my neighborhood and some of just won't even acknowledge they don't even acknowledge we exist unless we're in their way and other people are very friendly or will say oh have a great day and I think that's so great I've definitely been on walks where I'm like oh these individuals were not happy today but I agree with you it's something so small and simple that you can do to just have that connection and it's a way to pay it forward i think without needing something in return yeah i think when we can get away from needing something in return for doing something nice it just it, it, it intrinsically yeah. can fill us and i think that's really important too yeah yeah and that's a really good point and i never i'm not waiting for a response that's not the point <laughs> so right. you're absolutely right it's just I want to give that smile away, and I do. And it's, I, yeah. Yeah. it's I might note. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I just, I, I might note if someone doesn't respond very well, but I agree. You don't always do it for the response, but yeah. I might just sit there and go, yeah. oh. There, okay. Yeah, you're right. There are those people that, that it's like, oh, okay. That was a definite non-response. <laughs> just like they look at you like you're, you have two heads. But it's such a tiny thing. And I think we've gotten so far away from connecting with strangers. Which oh, we is have. different mm-hmm. if it's the people that you know. But reaching out to a stranger 
for one, it can be really scary. And I, I'm not suggesting in a dark alley at midnight or anything like that. But reaching out to someone you don't know just to pass on a positive smile, it's so almost innocuous, it's not going to harm anyone. But we don't know what that other person has gone through that day. We don't know if they're worried about a sick family member or have a child in hospital or lost their job or we don't know any of those things. And that can be the difference between them going forward with their day or sinking into some really horrible thoughts. Yes. And I just, I think of how much now working with children, I see that kids have a, a difficulty sometimes with reading situations, reading facial expressions and being able to understand. And I myself sometimes will catch, catch myself if I find that I'm not giving, they talk about the most generous interpretation where I just automatically assume you're just trying to get in my way. I have things I have to do. And then to take a step back and go, that's just me. What preparedness am I missing that now I'm feeling stressed or rushed about something. I don't have to put that on another person and just being able to pause and have that interaction for connection of whatever it may be in order to maintain those niceties that definitely can create a shift or change in someone else's day. Oh, absolutely. And, and that brings us to you working with children. Uh, Something that, that bothered me all through the pandemic was children born in 2020 or after over the first two years, they never saw strangers smile at them. Mm -hmm. And, And I don't know if everybody thinks that's such a loss as I do, but it's such a, for me, it was such a given. You see a child, you smile. And we just couldn't do that. Do you, in working with children, do you find that younger kids have been adversely affected when it comes to adults and strangers in their world because they weren't able to? to get those facial cues oh yes i see that with the facial cues with reading those different emotions through facial expressions i've also seen where kids really were isolated so they didn't have the socialization and even now are just starting to get more socialization especially kids who are in that one-year-old to to three-year-old range right now and and then it's Part of my job is to help close that gap and teach kids how to look for those social cues and some of that socialization piece. And it's and it is interesting to see just how much that impacted. I used to say with my son, he I would say like he's got to learn how to read people's eyes because yeah. of masks. And so yeah. this is smizing. This is and then almost would over-exaggerate and ask family members to over-exaggerate some of their emotions for him. Yeah. So he could learn a little bit more of how to read that. But I absolutely agree that COVID did a number for kids and being able to have that, that piece of recognizing what's going on for another individual, reading, reading the room, as you'd say, and then also just being able to have that socialization and to feel comfortable with saying what's going on for them. Even for older kids I've worked with who are school age of being able to be comfortable and talk about what big emotions they have. Because I think just in in that survival mode of the pandemic, there wasn't really room to express yourself really have that because it was just panic and then survival and all of a sudden the world has changed. So who really, there wasn't a whole lot of space or time available to really teach kids that. No, and and I think for school-age kids and, and young teens, it had to be really terrifying to suddenly see all the adults, pretty much all the adults, in panic mode, all the adults being fearful of other adults and of children. Just, it, it's such a, it, it's such a, a deviation from the norm 
that none of us knew how to handle it. Oh yeah, increase in anxiety, seeing, and, and part of what I do with my occupational therapy, and then I also do executive functioning coaching is helping kids now navigate some of that anxiety, going back and teaching them skills that they weren't able to practice or use during those years that they were home for school. So it's it's complicated and we're gonna be dealing with this for a while to try and help these children gain those skills and be able to make up for that, but then also to be able um, to compensate so that there are other ways to compensate for these things. And I think it's really important. It's like a very important thing to do now. And hopefully we can try and <laughs> continue. Yeah. Just try and continue to support these kids through it all. Cause it, yeah, it, it are, they're safe people were, we're completely in the throes of, of panic, as you said, and, and now we're dealing with the aftermath of that. Yeah, and it, it's, people are almost shell-shocked after, you see people after an accident or, or there's that certain amount of shell-shock and, and we're still seeing quite a number of people here wearing masks and people that are still very concerned about going up and going out in public and being among a lot of people. And I only think that is being communicated to the children. So they are much more fear, fearful than they ever were. Certainly much more fearful than my generation. And I think besides smiling at a stranger, make a point of smiling at all the kids. Exactly. And Right. Their safety, as you mentioned, their safety was completely challenged. And now, yes. And now just trying to create a safe environment for them moving forward. And also just how their the lack of predictability. I, I usually say predictability creates that sense of safety. But not only that, and then you have people who are passing away and dying during all this was going on. And then you're just trying, it was just the throes of everything and looking back sometimes, wow, we really did go through that. I know. Yeah. And it, I mean, it was for my particular situation, it was definitely more, more complicated because yeah. John died during the pandemic. Then I had yeah. my son, then all these other things while also still trying to be a support, even within my own family system and trying to yeah. navigate all of that with the heightened emotions. And I think just having the resources and tools, which I'm so grateful for what's available to kids now and that we yeah. are talking and having conversations more in order to empower people to continue to have those conversations and say, it's okay to really express yourself. And yeah, just even just a smile, like just a good reminder of you can just a smile to another person can be yeah. very impactful. It, it, it should, you think when you smile at someone, it, it is letting them know you are safe. You're not a threat at that moment, hopefully. You're not a threat. And yeah, that's actually such a good point about the idea of people being a threat to each other. Or yeah. and that makes me sad because because again, it's it's we're all just trying to figure out and navigate our day to day. Yeah. And the more that we can be unified, I think the more encouraging it can be for each of us that we can handle whatever comes our way absolutely and because in all honesty we are more resilient than we could ever know uh, and until something happens and and then you you really don't have an option but to make it through and you not only made it through you you wrote the manual so that other people can make it through and, and not have to take the hard road. I hope so. You know, I hope it's helpful. Again, just, just because it was so complicated and more difficult in my situation. So if a person can find comfort or can help have this help them continue to move forward. I've met quite a few people who are stuck in their grief process, which is very easy to do. I've had my own moments where I've had to realize, oh, I'm stuck on something. I need more help to try and keep moving. I don't say we move on, but I 
we do move forward. And it's easy to get stuck in a variety of different ways within our grief process and that shame and guilt can really come up. But I had people along the way who reminded me to keep going. And if I can be someone to help remind others to keep going and then this will somehow make the process worth it. But there's nothing good that comes from Sean dying, but maybe there's something good that can come from my process after. And from how you learn from it. Yeah, absolutely. And in the book, you talk also about forgiveness. Yes. (laughs) Because the name of the podcast has forgiveness in it. Mm -hmm. A big piece of, I think, many things is about the forgiveness of yourself, not just those around you and not just the person you've lost. Because there is an anger, there is a grievance, not grieving, but grievance when someone dies in any way at all because they've left us behind. Okay, it's, it's always about the, the being left behind. And that piece, I think, is something that people have to actually work on, is be sure to forgive yourself and your loved one that you lost. Oh, yes, and it's not easy. It's, mm-hmm. But that is part of my process was in trying to focus on forgiving Sean is when I realized, oh, I actually have to forgive myself. And in in multiple ways, not just it was how I handled the day that he died. How did I handle things going on in our marriage? What could I have done better? And then also releasing myself from the responsibility to have had to fix all those things in order to attempt to prevent this outcome. And that one's probably the hardest because there, I definitely have gone back and forth many times looking at different scenarios and what could I have done differently and how could I have handled this? And as though it was just my responsibility and even being able to separate myself from that and say it wasn't my responsibility to do. And then to truly forgive myself and say, I did not do this. No. And I can accept responsibility for the ways that I did contribute to stress in our lives, um, which is also hard. But again, it doesn't mean that I directly caused the outcome because Sean had his choice. I don't, I didn't, I don't really like his choice, but he did get to have his choice. Yeah. And that's where it ended up. But that self-forgiveness is really hard. And self-compassion, I think I struggle most <laughs> at yeah. the point with the yeah. self-compassion. But it is hard to be able to release ourselves from that responsibility. Oh, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense because we have to live with ourselves every day. But one thing I think is, is really important is that we, at the end of the day, the only one we control is us okay it's it's only me that i can the outcome for me is the only thing that i truly have a hand in yeah and it's again it's so hard to surrender there's been so much of this process for me that has had to include surrender because again here i am in this ridiculous situation and i'm looking for safety and security and control is a way to look for that and to feel that and then to be able to have to surrender that and like you're saying to acknowledge that really I need to stay in my lane and only what's in front of me is in my capacity to control Um, and there's some beauty in that too I will say because I think when you can get to that point and you can let go of other ways of trying to control there's just so much of that joy and and understanding of what's left in this life that can come in and i think that's really important as well oh absolutely and you have the benefit of having your son to lavish your love on and go forward with 
which I think is an incredible gift to have your little guy. Oh, I would not be, I don't think I would be in the position I'm in now or have been as able to heal as much as I have if it had not been for him. He, I, I recommend that people when you go through a, a tragic loss is to find something to anchor yourself to yeah. so that every day you just, even if it's just stepping a toe out of bed or getting a drink of water, that you're still doing something. And if I didn't have him as my anchor, I don't think that I would have been able to, to start healing as much and as quickly as I did. And yet it's still not quickly. You went through a lot. Oh, yes. And quickly in the sense of even just embracing the process. Yes. And, and like I said, it did take me a while to actually start to embrace it. And then I thought, oh, I got this. And, and initially I really thought I'm going to, I'm going to get through this grief journey. I'm going to be good. I'm not going to have to deal with this the rest of my life. And then very quickly I learned, <laughs> yeah. oh, you are going to have this for the rest of your yeah. life. And it doesn't happen quickly, but having really understanding, I didn't, while my son's life and my life is impacted by Sean's death, I didn't want it, our lives to be dictated by it. And we have um, moments comes and goes, Yeah, but we definitely have moments, but having him as someone to look forward to and, and kids keep us on our toes, right? That's, Oh, yeah. <laughs> he keeps me on my toes every day. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that that's such a good that's such a good thing. Not dictate that that is really an important point. Is is being able to go forward with your memories and go forward with the pieces that are important to go forward with, but not dictate the outcome of every moment going forward yeah and it, it takes a little bit to figure out i think how to navigate that we have pictures up of sean and i want my son to know his dad and at the same time i try and be mindful of how i talk about his dad around him and what kind of memories we discuss and he has asked how his dad died and we're still i'm still navigating that right now yeah. but i it's one of those, yep, you have a dad. This is how we're approaching it. And then also just not having, while I recognize when it's been Sean's birthday or Father's Day or something or yeah. a milestone comes up for my son, trying to keep it a little lighter in how we talk about his yeah. dad so that it's not just mommy's really upset today because daddy's missing. And I am honest with him That's about good. those things and yeah. being able to say, oh, I am a little sad, but not to have it be to the point of we can't have a birthday party for you because I'm really yeah. sad that daddy's not here those kinds of things where yeah. it tends to take a larger toll and I think being aware of how these things impact us is really important so I know around certain holidays if it's not good like father's day is a harder one for me mm -hmm. then sometimes I'll have family take my son for the day so that I can just have my time yeah. to work through it and not necessarily have it impact his day as well. Although eventually, and I had spoken to uh, someone else, and it was that they took their daughter to the cemetery on Mother's Day. Yes, I've definitely thought about that as my son is starting to ask more questions, and um, I like to I like to do coffee dates. <laughs> I take a chair to the cemetery, and I have yeah, to have yeah. And Sean and I have a little chat. But I've thought about that more recently. My son just turned four. So I've thought about maybe he's yeah. getting to a point where I can bring him by the cemetery so he can yeah. see what I'm doing. Because he'll say, oh, mom, you're going to the cemetery today to talk to daddy. I'm like, yep, that's what yeah. I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> but I haven't actually, it's been a while since I've actually brought him there. Yeah. I know for people I'm talking about, the little one was in school and it was grade one and they were making cards. And she can still make a card. She just has to take it to the cemetery, not, it's just a little bit different what you're doing. But it doesn't stop her doing that. That's sweet. Yeah, and it, it gave her and, and her dad more of a feeling of connection. And it, it made her similar to the kids in her class. 
because she made a card for mommy too. The fact that, that mommy's not physically here was not of import. It was making the card and being able to take it somewhere. I love that idea. I think that's great. My son tends to do cards for his uncle or for his yeah. grandpa or something like that. But I do like that idea of, of helping kids find their own way to honor yeah. their lost parent or their lost loved one. Yeah. And I think sometimes as adults, we can say, this is what we're going to do. But as you've been saying this whole time, when you listen and can actually see what is going to be impactful for the child so that they feel that they've done something to honor their parent or their Absolutely. I think and, that's and really cool. Yeah, it allows them to keep the memories alive, not just being told. And in fact, okay, look at Mexico, okay? The Day of the Dead is a huge day, mm -hmm. okay? In India, they, like in all these other cultures, they celebrate their ancestors. They, the people that they have lost, they incorporate them into the family life going on. And I know we tell all kinds of stories all the time about all the people that are no longer with us. And I think this is no different, but it's, it's about changing the perception and ending that silence. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Thank you. And, and again, it's giving kids an opportunity. It's teaching them that it's okay to talk about it. It's teaching yeah. them different ways to express about it too. Okay, if you can't talk about it right now, can you draw about it? Can you do a card? Yes. Do you, Is there a song you want to listen to that reminds? So just to keep that, that line of communication open so that when they are ready, they feel that they can without there being shame or guilt around it as well. Exactly, exactly. And that I think we... We have to go forward this way and be able to incorporate not just the people that are with us here, but the people that have left us. Yeah, I love that. I love it. And there's so many different ways to do that, even as oh an adult. Yeah. I think it's just yes. finding what works. And one thing I will say, because I've run into this in my own situation, where not everyone you're around is going to be okay with it. No, they're not. <laughs> Even if that happens, and let's say family is not okay with it or a partner, find your own ways. Find the resolve and the confidence to still do it yourself. Because I had that happen a couple times around, oh, okay, like I thought we were going to do this or that. And then finally, I had to stop and say, it's okay for me to just go and do it anyway. I can't expect other people to embrace how I want to honor Sean in the same yeah. way. That's just not how it's going to happen. So being able to do it for myself. So I still encourage people to do it. Don't not do it because other people won't. Yeah. Yeah. Because it doesn't really matter what the other people think. That's if true. If you give you solace, if it's good for you and your child, then do it. But, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I agree. I agree. Finding those ways and what works. Yeah. And again, it just takes, it just takes quieting other people and being grounded in what you know to be true. Yeah. And then that will lead you, in my opinion, it will lead you the right way every time. Absolutely. I think that's wonderful. It's a great sentiment because yeah, not everybody believes the same thing. Not everybody thinks the same thing. And that's fine. We don't all have to be little carbon copies. So that would be boring. <laughs> I, I have a childlike look in some things. And yeah. Don't want life to be boring. Absolutely not. Oh, no. Yeah. I, I have not. to say, okay, Alexandra, there, there are so many pieces in the book, from the forgiveness piece to rebuilding. And one of, one of uh, the chapters is what's left unsaid was really was really important because you don't want to, I don't want to see someone left second guessing themselves constantly and being hesitant about what they can put out there because they're still attached to whatever. How did you get past some of those things? 
Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I think one, it does take some time. I don't really like time as the ant, like the ultimate answer for things, yeah. but time is a component. Mm-hmm. I think you also have to run through some of those ideas or not necessarily I was perseverating and ruminating and not that you have to go that round birds, the thoughts that just keeps swirling and swirling. But I do think there's a part of it where you have to do a little bit of that in order to, again, release some of those ideas and thoughts. But I use a combination. I was journaling. I had a therapist. I would meditate. And it really took a combination of different tools for me to finally start to, to move forward with that. And a big shift for me was between the idea of Sean's death being me left behind, which you talked about earlier, and then understanding that his death was about him. And when I could actually shift my mindset to his death was about him, then that's where a bit more of that compassion came in, but I could let go of some of those perseverative thoughts, trying to keep going down that rabbit hole of, what if this was going on? What if this was going on? What was he thinking here? And it's very typical to, to go through all of that. Oh, yeah. So it's very common. But when I could shift away from it being about me to being about him, that kind of lessened. It didn't stop right away, but it just lessened. And then eventually it, it really became um, more sporadic and more constant. That That's really good to hear. And thank you. That, that was really well put. If you could leave the audience with one thought going forward from all that you learned, because you obviously did lots of research to, to put the book together, and all that you've seen of yourself and your son coming forward, what would you say to give someone that perhaps is just in the throes of tragedy just a little modicum of hope? Yes. There's so many things <laughs> that, yeah. that I would want to say. But for one tidbit, and I would say, I had someone say this to me on day zero, and it was, you can do this. And I didn't believe her. She told me I wouldn't believe her and I didn't. But after she told me that it just hung out there. So every time that I started really doubting and I had lots of days where I was really doubting, I wasn't sure and was very fearful, her little voice would pop up and say, but you can do this. And it's hard there's a lot, I call it the sludge. You got to work through the sludge. You can't go around it. But when you do, what's on the other side is so worth it. And you can do this as well. Find the tools, reach out to people. It is a village. We can't do it on our own. I know I'm adding a lot of other tidbits in there. I'm don't know that. Don't know. You just keep going. You just keep going. <laughs> but you do, it does take other people to help. And we have to overcome ourselves and our pride in order to ask for that help and figure out what we need, but keep going. Because on the other side of it is the possibility of joy. It is recognizing purpose and meaning in what our life has left and then being able to to pay it forward and keep moving forward. That was absolutely beautiful. And I also wanted to say my heart broke for her as well when I read that. It's, uh, that that makes her a pretty special person too. I I sometimes wonder if, if there's other questions I want to ask when I have a guest and I have to say I feel complete. You wrap that up beautifully. You took us through all the pieces in a really considerate way. I thank you for being so open, so honest. And I thank you most for this, the Suicide Club. 
What to do when someone you love chooses death? I firmly believe this is a manual that everybody needs to have access to. And it's, it's an interesting look from the moment of tragedy all the way up to making a new life, which is really what you've done. I've just absolutely and thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. I, I feel that with your prompts in our conversation, it's, it really has. I feel the same. I feel that we've really been able to demonstrate a complete and thorough conversation on how to handle or take on such a type of grief. And I'm just so appreciative of all the work that you're doing and, and being able to be a support system and another tool for people. Thank you very much. I just cannot thank you enough. You have an awful lot of wisdom, Alexandra, and I thoroughly appreciate that. I look forward to the next time we can chat. I like that idea. And <laughs> I have a feeling this is not the last time we will see. I hope not. I hope not. I do not think so. So I will say goodbye. Thank you again to Alexandra Wyman. Don't forget about the book. It will be all the information about the book and about Alexandra and where you can contact her will be available on the podcast page or right below the podcast. I'm Elaine Lindsay. This is Suicide Zen Forgiveness. And I want to say to you, make the very best of your today every day. I say that every time and I honestly mean it. Thanks a lot. And I look forward to seeing you all next time. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on your favorite service. Suicide Zen Forgiveness was brought to you by Truel Social Media, the digital integration specialists. Let them get you on page one in the search results. And also by Canada's keynote humorist, Judy Kroon motivational speaker, comedian, author, and stand-up coach at Second City. On the stage, Judy draws from her wealth of performance experience, wit, and insight to entertain, inform, and inspire in her dynamic keynotes and half-day workshops.